0: Amen. You guys can be seated this morning, I'm i open up your Bibles with me. Uh, John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We'll be continuing our studies through the gospel of John. And this morning we come to what I believe is the climax of John chapter 7. That we've, we've been in John 7 for a couple weeks now, and we've been seeing these various scenarios play out. It began with Jesus' brothers in the beginning. It began um, from there with the crowds and the Jews. And then we saw the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and the priests of the day. And there's been this building tension throughout John chapter 7. And it's all in the background of this Feast of Tabernacles or booths, where this great feast that would happen every year in Jerusalem. People would come from all around the surrounding area, Tens, maybe even hundreds of miles would travel to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. And the tension has been building because there's this contrast between the desire of the peoples, whether it's Jesus' brothers, the crowds, the religious leaders of the day. They want to see this external outward glory. They want to see Christ perform a sign, gather crowds around him, make a great name for himself. And in doing this, they've missed the true glory of Christ. And that what's ironic about the whole thing is this feast was celebrating God's presence with his people. It was supposed to remind them of God's presence with them, even in the wilderness wandering. And why it's ironic is because the one who tabernacled among them, Christ himself, is being missed. He's being passed over. He stands in their midst, and yet they remain blind to his true glory. And so what we're going to see today in John chapter 7 verses 37 through 39 is that even though all of this has happened, there's been this tension that's building, it is not going to prevent Christ from from presenting who he is, proclaiming the fulfillment of all that this Feast of Tabernacles pointed to, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of this temple that would, this dwelling place of God that would bring forth water, living water for God's people. But he even gets to a more critical, personal detail. We'll see today that in John chapter seven, Christ points out man's great need, you and I's great need this morning. And in doing that, he will point us toward the only remedy for weak, weary, and thirsty souls. And we'll see the answer is none other than Christ himself, the one who's been glorified, poured out his spirit, and saved his people. So. Do you want to follow along with me, I'll read John chapter 7. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. John says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me. And as the scripture has said, out of his heart, his inmost being, will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we we come in great need this morning. We come relying on you, relying on you alone, that even as we read your word, your infallible holy word that you have given to us, your divine revelation, your revelation of who you are and how we may be saved. Even as we read those words, Lord, our finite fallen minds are incapable of truly grasping what is being said without the work of the triune God this morning? And so we come this morning relying on you, praying that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would reveal to us the glory of the gospel of Christ, and that this morning as we see Christ revealed in both Old Testament and New Testament, that we would see the glory of Christ and be changed from one degree of glory to the next by the holding the face of Christ. So we we ask that you would do this. We rely on you this morning, and we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So I have to admit that as I began studying for this passage, there's a lot of weight to this passage for me personally. This is a text that I've wrestled with and thought about a lot. Maybe you're even picking up on some of those things this morning. So Hopefully we'll see the glory of Christ this morning as we look at this passage and we see all that God has for us in it. So before we get into it, it's kind of important again to look at the setting of John chapter 7. Because what is the first thing John says? He says, on the last day of the feast, that this Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day-long feast. It began on a Sabbath, on a, son- on a Saturday, and it ended on a Sabbath, this day of rest and consummation. And as we've talked about, at this Feast of Booths, the people would build a tabernacle, a small booth covering for them, and it was to celebrate what God had done. Not only in terms of agriculture, right, it was a celebration of this great in-gathering, this consummation of God's provision for them agriculturally, but it was also a remembering of God's redemption in the past, that God had brought the people through the Exodus, and then during the wilderness wandering, God, by the Spirit, the glory cloud, covered and protected God's people through the wilderness. And so these booth-like structures that they would build were meant to remind the people, first, of God's provision, His, His care for them, His covering of them, but secondly, that this wilderness was not their home. God was leading them to the promised land. And there's another interesting element that we haven't really touched on but many commentators pick up on is that there was also during the feast of tabernacles there was this element of water there was this element of water that was present that on the great day the last day that we read about in john 37 there would be this great procession of people that they would follow the priest down they would gather water and they would take it up to the temple mount and they would pour out the water on the temple. And you can almost picture this great event where there would be hundreds, maybe even thousands of people going up to the temple with water, pouring it out on the altar, and this kind of river of water flowing out from the temple. This was on the great last day. And so this this event symbolized not only the hope of the people for God to provide rain for their crops and agriculture, but was also what we call an eschatological hope, a hope for life, cleansing, and really this salvation that God would bring to his people that we read about in Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 12, 44 and 55. And so we have to understand that as we Read Jesus' words because it's in this context on the great day, on the last day, when the water is being poured out on the altar, flowing from the temple. Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Let him drink who believes in me. And so we begin as we look at our first point this morning, as we look at verse 37 will look at our great need. That Jesus here picks up on man's essential need, our great need, when he says the words, if anyone is thirsty. If anyone is thirsty. He's not saying, he's not talking about physical, bodily thirsting. He is talking about the thirsting of the soul. And, What what does Jesus mean here? Why why is he talking about thirsty? He's recognizing that in a sense, everyone is thirsty. Everyone is thirsty. That because man is made in the image of God, because you and I as creatures of God are made in his image, we were made for union and communion with him. We were meant to worship him. We were meant to adore him. But as we confess this morning, because of Adam's sin and our own sin we've lost that communion, we've lost that life that we had in the garden. And so what Christ is picking up on this is that man's great folly is searching for life, for salvation, for cleansing in everything but God, right? This is the disposition of man, it is to seek for life, it is to try to fill that thirst for anything other than God. So everyone is thirsty, everyone is thirsty, everyone is hungry, but there's a blindness, there's a darkness. There's Even though everyone is thirsty, not everyone recognizes their great need. That's what Jesus is picking up on in his words in verse 37. This deep thirsting of the soul. He says if anyone is thirsty, he's saying this thirst is not a mere bodily thirst, but a thirst of the soul for salvation, for life, for cleansing, for forgiveness of sin. This is what Jesus is talking about. And if we can say it really simply and almost tritely, before anyone drinks, they must recognize their need. You don't drink something that you don't need, right? This is how Augustine put it. You do not drink if you are not thirsty. You do not drink if you are not thirsty. What's another way to say this? Well, Jesus in Luke chapter 5 says, He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? Is Jesus saying there's a category of righteous people and a category of sinful people, and he came to call the, the sinners, but there's this category of righteous people that he's not really concerned about? No. What he's saying is that, there are self-righteous people. There are people that have made themselves righteous before God on their own. They think they're fine. They don't need God. They're not thirsty. They don't they don't need a drink. They they're righteous on their own. And saying Jesus saying I didn't come to save them because they don't need me. He said, "I came to save sinners, those that see that they are not righteous before a holy God." So Jesus here not only points out the great need of every man, of you and I, but he also provides the remedy. He provides the remedy. And that brings us to our second point this morning. We'll see our only remedy. Our only remedy is found in Christ. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone has this soul thirst for salvation, he points them to himself. He says, come to me. He doesn't point them to a different direction. He doesn't say, you know, clean yourself up first, get your life together, and then come to me. He says, no, if anyone thirsts, if anyone recognizes their need, come to me and drink. And here he points out man's only cure, man's only remedy, man's only way of salvation is found by coming to Christ. The only way sinners can be made right with God, the only way that we can have our communion with the triune God restored, the only way that we can receive life and salvation and cleansing and true satisfaction for our thirsty soul is found in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, come to me. Come to me and drink. Drink of Christ, that he is the remedy. There's no other way. What did he say in John chapter six? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. It's it's almost a parallel passage that we see here in John chapter 7. And in the same way that we see in John chapter 6, Jesus fulfilling this feast of the Passover by coming to be the lamb whose blood would be spilt and body would be broken. He's the manna that's come down from heaven, the true bread from heaven. In a similar way, Jesus' words here are picking up on another fulfillment, another promise of the Old Testament. That Jesus, in talking about this drinking of him, this rivers of living water, Jesus is not just using beautiful language to talk about hungering and thirsting and satisfaction, but he is picking up on promises and types from the Old Testament. That when Jesus says these words, come to me and drink, he is saying, I am the true fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. I am the true fulfillment. I am everything that this feast pointed to. That Christ himself is the true tabernacle. He's the one that tabernacled or dwelt among us, right? The word that took on flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among God's people. He is the one dispenser of life-giving water, the well of salvation promised in Isaiah, right? He is the one out of whose innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He is the one that satisfies the thirsty soul who cleanses and who brings life to God's people. And it's no coincidence that this is happening on the last day of the feast. What did we talk about? The people are bringing water. They're pouring it out on the temple. And water, this river of water is flowing from the temple. And that's where Jesus says, come and drink. And out of me will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is not just using this language randomly or coincidentally or happenstantially. But he is, he is saying that everything is pointing to me. And what's really even more interesting is that this imagery that we can picture here, the happening on the last day of the feast, this river of water flowing from the temple, bringing life, is found in the Old Testament. It's found in the Old Testament. Water flowing from the temple, bringing life to God's people is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. What do I mean? If you go to the first couple chapters of the scriptures, Genesis chapter two, we read that the Garden of Eden is set up like this garden temple, where God's presence dwells in a special way. And it says out of Eden flows this river that brings life to God's creation. So we have this garden temple with a river flowing through it that brings life to God's creation. And the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the temple of Israel, is sort of pictured as a miniature Garden of Eden. There's all this imagery in the temple as you would enter it that would remind you of the Garden of Eden. And what's amazing, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, they pick up on this language of a temple and a river. And they describe the final end times dwelling place of God. They describe this end times dwelling place of God as a temple, as a temple out of which flows living water that will bring life to God's people. This is how the temple is promised in the Old Testament. And so we could look at several different passages, but I'll just bring up three this morning. If you go to Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees this vision. Ezekiel has some far-out visions. I don't know if you've ever read Ezekiel, maybe chapter 1. There's like a, a wheel with a bunch of eyes on it, and you're like, whoa, what is this? But in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel sees this vision of the new temple of God, that it's this final end times temple of God. And he pictures it with a water source that is flowing from the temple that is bringing life to God's people. Interesting. If you go to Joel chapter 3, it says that there will be a spring or a fountain that will go out from the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord was the temple of God. Joel says there's going to be a spring or a fountain that goes out from the house of the Lord, the temple of God. Zechariah chapter 14 says that living water will flow out of Jerusalem in the last days. What is going on? The prophets are picturing this temple where rivers of living water are flowing out from the temple, giving life to God's people. What what did we read about in John chapter 7? Jesus says, come to me and drink, and out of his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is standing up on the temple in the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's saying that which is pointed to in the Old Testament That's me. He's saying, I am the true temple. I am the true dwelling place of God, the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. I am the one that gives life to God's people, forgiveness, refreshing. And that Christ himself is the one out of whose innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's Christ. He's the fulfillment. And this living water we find is actually the spirit this living water that is talked about in the old testament and and talked about in John chapter 7 verse 38 John the apostle tells us that this is the spirit this living water is the spirit so this brings us to our last and final point this morning as we look at verse 39 We'll look at Christ as the life-giving Spirit. That the Apostle John here in verse 39, if you look down at your Bibles with me, it's, a, it's sort of a commentary on what we, the two verses that we read before. So Jesus' words end at verse 38, and then at verse 39, John, reflecting on these events, maybe 40 years later, says this. Now this he said about the Spirit. And he's talking about these rivers of living water. That the rivers of living water that Jesus spoke about is talking about the Spirit. It's language, it's it's metaphors for what the Spirit will do with the Spirit of God. That this third person of the Triune God is the one pictured here, these rivers. Of living water. That the Old Testament looked forward to and pointed to this day in the last days when God would pour out His Spirit. We read about it this morning. What's it say in Isaiah 12 and Isaiah 44? I will pour out water on the thirsty ground, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. That this age of the Spirit, this age of the Messiah, was promised in the Old Testament. And John, the Apostle John, is giving us the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. He's saying, The rivers of living water flowing from the temple is the promised spirit. It is the promised spirit that's been poured out by the ascended and risen Christ. That's that's a lot. There's a lot of implications of that, but it's amazing to think about what John is saying here, that this river of living water that's being poured out is the Spirit, the promised Spirit that has now come in the ascended and risen Christ. And so that all sounds well and good, and maybe you've been tracking with me, but verse 39, towards the end, says something that has tripped up a lot of people says something that's tripped up a lot of people. At verse 39, it says this. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Christ was not glorified. It says that the Spirit had not been given, or literally translated, that word given there is supplied by the translator, but it's not actually in the Greek text. It's a a good translation, but it's almost as if the text is saying, if you read it literally, the Spirit was not yet. Which, if we're being honest, that should cause us to pause for a second. That it seems to imply that there's some sort of non-existence of the Spirit before Christ's glorification, before the day of Pentecost. Or at least, at minimum, some sort of inactivity of the Spirit. That these are the questions that are often asked about this text. Did the Spirit even exist before the day of Pentecost? Before Jesus was raised, glorified, and poured out his Spirit on the day of Pentecost, did the Spirit even exist? People will go to texts like this and say, maybe not. Another question, was the Spirit even at work in the Old Testament? Maybe we can say the Spirit did exist, we believe in the Trinity, but maybe the Spirit wasn't at work, he was kind of dormant. People will go to this text, and we'll try to prove that point from verse 39. Well, we believe that the Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, is a co-creator in creation, inspired the Old Testament Scriptures, is the glory cloud that leads the people. So the Spirit was not, in no way inactive. So that's false. But there's a more common belief, and the final question that people will ask about this text is they will say, maybe the Spirit did exist. Maybe the Spirit was at work, but the Spirit did not indwell or regenerate Old Testament saints, that the believers in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David, they might have been saved, but they were not indwelled by the Spirit. They were not regenerated by the Spirit, or at least until Christ was resurrected. So this is a tough question because the text seems to say, if we read it in a certain way, that the Spirit was not yet given. And so until Christ was glorified and poured out His Spirit, that, there was, that the Spirit was not able to indwell or regenerate God's people. And so we have to sort of step back and look at the whole picture of Scripture when we come to passages like this that are sometimes difficult to interpret or understand. That we believe that Old Testament saints were saved, they were saved by faith, Right? What does it say in Genesis 15? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you read Hebrews 11, and you see, by faith, Abraham believed. By faith, Moses believed. By faith, Abel believed. So there's this idea that faith is present even in the Old Testament, which most people wouldn't, wouldn't disagree with. But what might be distinctly reformed interpretation of this passage is that because of what we believe about man and sin and salvation, is that because of man's sinfulness, because we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, because nobody seeks after God, as Romans 2 says, that in order to even believe in God by faith that a new creation work of the Spirit is necessary. That regeneration must come before faith. That a new heart and a new birth is necessary before one can have saving faith in the promised Messiah. So we know what the text isn't saying. We just kind of dealt with that for a couple minutes. So, what is it saying? What is John chapter 7, verse 39 saying? What does it mean that the Spirit was not yet given? And if I can be really transparent for a second, I had a view of, I was reading this passage, and even how, how you read it sometimes, we, make, we have this tendency as we read the Bible to make it about us, first and foremost, that whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, we tend to just kind of read ourselves into it, first and foremost, maybe you're reading a psalm or a proverb, and we make it all about us, but I think that when we do that, it causes us to misunderstand why John wrote in this way. And when we have things like covenant theology to help us understand it, we see that this text is primarily not about us first and foremost, but it is about Christ. What do I mean? Why connect this idea of the giving of the Spirit to Christ's resurrection? Okay, so Kendall, you're saying Old Testament saints—they were saved, they were regenerated. Well, John here is making a connection between the Spirit being poured out and the glorification of Christ. Why is he doing that? Why is he putting these things together in this way? And if I can explain it like this, I think many of us are familiar with Christ coming and accomplishing redemption. Right? We believe that He lives the perfect life. He Died the death that we deserve, that his atoning death on the cross that was promised in the Old Testament is the only way that we can be made right with God. His suffering, the wrath that we deserve for our sin, he secured justification for God's people, our legal right standing before a holy God. Christ has done it, but oftentimes we stop there. We kind of stop at Christ's crucifixion and we don't really go any further and we end up leaving the rest of salvation to ourselves. right? Christ accomplished it in the past, but the rest is up to us. And what I think John is picking up on here is that Christ is not only the accomplisher of salvation, but as the son of man, the last enthroned Adam, the last Adam, he is not only the accomplisher of salvation, but he is the one that applies salvation to God's people by the Spirit. And if you want to turn with me and see this, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Let's go to the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is where after that Christ has ascended, he's gone into heaven. At the right hand of the Father, Peter begins preaching after the Spirit has been poured out. And if you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 33, there's something very interesting. Christ has been resurrected, he has been ascended, and then on the day of Pentecost... Peter says this to the crowds that are gathering around. He's talking about Christ. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's saying this about Christ, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Christ not only died on the cross, was resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, it says in verse 33 that he received the Spirit, and that he poured out this Spirit on the people, on his church. Which, it sounds kind of odd to us, right? If we believe in the Trinity, we believe in the unity of God, we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does he mean that the Son of God, Jesus, received the Spirit, Well, Christ was a two-natured redeemer. We talked about that last week. He is not only fully God, but he is fully man. And he has come as the last Adam in his human nature because of his perfect obedience and righteousness and fulfilling all righteousness. He receives the promised Holy Spirit from the Father. And that is what he pours out on his people. And if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, it says this, about comparing the first Adam and Christ the last Adam. It says the first Adam became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That there's something about Christ as the resurrected, enthroned last Adam, he has purchased the spirit, he has received the spirit from the Father, and that is what he's pouring out on his people. And that in Christ... All true believers have the Spirit of God. This spring of eternal life, whether you're a saint in the Old Testament or a believer in the New Testament, all true believers have the Spirit. And if we can just kind of put it like this, I I hope this is helpful. This this was helpful for my thinking as we jump back to John 7. We could say it like this. Just as we believe the death of Christ is, is not to be repeated, right? We're not to re-sacrifice Christ, neither is the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost to be repeated. We're not looking for other Pentecosts, just as we're not looking for other crucifixions of Christ. It was a final historical event that happened, and in light of that is sort of the culmination of God's redemptive work. And we can also say this, just as we believe the benefits of Christ's death were communicated to Old Testament saints, even though his death had not occurred, in the same way Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Spirit even before the day of Pentecost. Is that making sense? Hopefully that's clear. That This is why John is bringing these things together. There's this final climactic element to Christ being glorified and pouring out His Spirit. What it's really saying is that redemption is accomplished. Redemption has happened. And the application of that redemption is sure. Christ will pour out His Spirit. He is the one. He is the river. He is, sorry, He's the true temple. And out of Him will flow rivers of living water. This is the the spirit that we've talked about in John chapter seven. So there's lots to be said here. We're seeing this as Christ is the only way of salvation. The spirit is the only one that can bring life to God's people. And this is only possible because of the life, death, resurrection and ascension and the pouring out of the spirit by the ascended Lord on God's people. So as we step away from this passage, as we try to apply this passage to our own lives, two things to look at this morning. We see Jesus pick up on the thirsting of man, the thirsting of man, that Jesus realizes, as we should, that everyone is thirsty. Everyone has a thirst of their soul. Everyone has a desire for something more. And in our sinfulness, in our our fallen state, we search for this thirst in the world and the things of the world. We go to the things of the world, we think that they will satisfy. We go to them, we go to our sin. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's that God created good things. But if we go to those things as our ultimate satisfaction, they will leave us dry and ultimately to lead us to death. It's like drinking salt water when you're stranded on a desert island, right? It provides a quench for your thirst for the moment, but it only kills you all the quicker. And that is what these things do. The things of the world cannot satisfy the thirst that Christ is talking about in our passage this morning. These things cannot truly satisfy. And so as Christians, as believers, and and as a minister of the gospel, we are called to point people to Christ. We're not to point them to anything other than Christ, that he is the only remedy for thirsty souls. What does he say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. We're to to see the thirsty world and say, go to Christ. He's the fountain of living water. He's He's the one that will quench your thirst, quench your desires. Sin won't do that. Going after your own desires will not do that. It is Christ alone. Run to him, fly to the fountain of living water, and find rest for your weary souls. And to make an application that may not be readily apparent, we see in this passage that Christ is the true temple. He is the giver of the Spirit. And by implication, he is the one that is building his church by the Spirit. That when you go to the book of Acts, when you go to the day of Pentecost, that is what we are seeing and reading about. What does it say? That Christ poured out his spirit, that the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea to not Judea, yeah, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that this is God building his church through Christ by the Spirit, and that all that are united to Christ by faith have been indwelt by the Spirit. What does Ephesians 2 say? That we are being, the church of God is being built up into a holy temple, a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So the church is viewed as a temple, a dwelling place of God. It says in Ephesians that we've been sealed for the day of redemption, that the Spirit given to God's people is a seal, a guarantee, a pledge of eternal life. The Spirit that not only sanctifies God's people, but satisfies them, what did Jesus tell the woman at the well? That the Spirit would be a spring welling up in her to eternal life. That this, the Spirit is viewed as this life-giving source for God's people. This is an amazing thing to think about, that the Spirit as this living water is flowing from Christ as the last Adam, the true temple, and what is being continued today through God's church is Christ building his holy temple, his holy dwelling place. And so we can see the Spirit not only as the one that leads us to salvation, but as the one who gives us life and strength and support, this living water that nourishes and, and quenches the thirst of God's people. And so as we do most Sundays, as we look to the end, we look to the final in consummation. That these verses in John chapter 7, they not only look to Pentecost, but they look past Pentecost. They look all the way to the final day, the day of consummation where Christ will be, where, where the glorified Christ will dwell with his glorified people. And if you go to Revelation chapter 22, you see this amazing picture of the last and final day, this picture of what God will do, what he's promised to do for his people that have been dwelt with the Spirit. What does it say in Revelation 22? Notice this language. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face; his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need of lamp for sun, but the sun for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's our hope this morning that because of the indwelling spirit that was poured out by the resurrected and glorified Christ, you and I have hope this morning that even though our sin makes us feel like we're not worthy, and we're not, that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs with Christ. So we have hope this morning, that this river of living water has begun in us, the spirit, and will lead us to the consummation of last day where all will be made new. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel, that it is in Christ alone that the weary and thirsty soul can find rest and satisfaction. And to search for, to search for satisfaction in anything else is folly. It is, it, is, it is to seek and to look after broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so this morning we come to you, the resurrected and ascended Lord, the, the fountain of living water, the, the true temple, the one that has poured out his spirit, this river of living water that brings life to God's people. No longer is it a priest who pours out the water, but it is Christ himself, our great high priest. And so this morning we can resonate with the words of Zechariah, that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. This morning, we rest on the finished work of Christ, not only in applying and accomplishing redemption, but applying redemption to God's people by the spirit. We have hope this morning that on the last day, we will stand before God in glorified resurrected bodies that the that the natural must put on the spiritual that the that the mortal must put on immortality and we will dwell with Christ forever and ever we pray these things in your son's name amen